I'm Jen Taylor Skinner, and this is The Electorate. On this episode, I have a conversation with Glenda Carr, the president and CEO of Higher Heights for America, a national organization building the collective political power and leadership of Black women. The last time I spoke with Glenda Carr was on election night during my live coverage of the election results. In today's conversation, which was recorded a few days following the election, we talk about the historic nature of this election, including what it means to have Vice President-elect Kamala Harris on the ticket. Higher Heights was actually an early endorser of Kamala Harris's campaign for president, and later they supported her to be chosen as Joe Biden's VP pick. We talk about how they made that decision, as well as some of the other women they considered endorsing. Glenda and I also talk about what we need to do to continue to build on the political power of women of color, and particularly Black women, and how we need to start by having some really tough and uncomfortable conversations about how best to support one another. So without further ado, here is my conversation with Glenda Carr. Well, Glenda Carr, welcome. Thanks for having me. So the last time we talked, it was election night, but it felt, it feels like it was like 10 years ago, right? And we didn't have a decision. That was a really, really long night. But now we have um, President-elect Joe Biden and Vice President-elect Kamala Harris. How do you feel about that? How do you feel about this historic moment? I mean, it's obviously we've been working towards what does 2020 look like for black women's political leadership from the voting booth to elected office. And so we found ourselves in, you know, um, you know, excited about a Kamala Harris presidential run in the Democratic primary. Then South Carolina happens and, you know, like our most diverse Democratic stage was down to two, you know, fit the historic mole, right? white, male, and older. Um, and so we continue to you know, dig in that there was a record number of women running for office um, and a record number of black women running for office, particularly um, for the United House of Representatives. And then the summer comes and Joe Biden, you know, you know, with a lot of work and advocacy around the need of seeing a diverse ticket that you had multiple black women who were being considered vice president, that you know, we were all excited when Vice President Biden announced Kamala Harris. And so let me tell you what ends up happening. There's all this road to 2020 election day and then like road to 2020 election result. I'm at the grocery store getting eggs <laughs> when, they, when they announced um, that they had called the race, um, called the election. And so prideful moment. I mean, regardless if you are a woman that supported the Biden-Harris ticket or not, women across this country and this globe, you know, celebrated the fact that we are moving, you know, our leadership inch by inch. And matter of fact, we we like cracked, not even cracked, cracked open the possibilities that exist for women's leadership. And then you add in that Kamala Harris boldly walks within her multiple identities, right? And those multiple identities is a, a woman of color, a daughter of immigrants you know, a, a Black woman who literally, when you open up the book on political leadership, is a pipeline, ran for local office, statewide executive office, federal office, and is literally stepping in to her next phase um, into the Oval Office as a governing mate for the highest office. She also then brings her cultural identities, right? Here's a woman who is a member of a historically Black Greek letter organization, Alpha Kappa Alpha Sorority Incorporated and attended historically black college. Um, and so all of those identities, I believe the, the enthusiasm that we saw in this general election was that people could see themselves in her, right? I am a daughter of Jamaican immigrant. 
So that excites me. I am a you know proud member of a, the same sorority. Didn't go to a historically black college, but knowing the, the importance of those institutions. And then you bring all of her qualifications as an elected leader, that she is literally her leadership was built for this moment. And so we celebrate. So one of the things that I wanted to mention, because you mentioned the summer, right? Um, I remember over the summer and the spring before he chosen Kamala Harris, right? And that was a really fraught time for me because she ended her campaign and I really wanted her to, to you know, get the nomination. So I was supportive. And I know that Higher Heights, you know, endorsed her really early on. But, you know, so we so had a moment of, you know, being a bit down when she ended her campaign. But then there was this moment, this period, this window where he hadn't chosen his VP and he said he was going to choose a woman. And then there was this push to select you know a black woman and you know i just remember that you know even when she was during the primary when she was running for president you know she had a very short period where she wasn't being criticized right um and i think that happens for any black woman that that you know seeks a higher leadership position but it just came on so quickly for her right and i remember and i want to bring this comparison up for a very specific reason she was criticized for being you know ambitious people criticized you know her for her laugh but one thing in particular that really caught my attention was her, the criticism around her career and her time as a prosecutor, right? And that's really important because she was not the only prosecutor on that stage. You know what I mean, right? Amy Klobuchar. And this isn't a comparison of their records as prosecutors. This is talking about how the media and how constituents and how we as a culture, you know, have these two separate vetting processes. Because we only started talking about Amy Klobuchar's you know, time as a prosecutor once, you know, once Kamala Harris was out of the race. So what mm-hmm. are your thoughts on that? You know, how do we prepare Black women in leadership roles to you know, deal with this kind of unequal vetting? Yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, Black women have all these institutional barrier, barriers, man-made obstacles, and then you add in unconscious or conscious, I usually put them both in, unconscious conscious biases about our leadership that what has been perceived as a strength for a white man or one of our uh, a counterpart is actually a negative for us so from ambition um you know at the end of the day as voters we should be questioning our elected leaders vying for our votes on our on our records but there was definitely a very strong framing around her around being a top cop um, and what does that mean? And we have to be careful on that, right? Like we can, I, I said, I have no problem in having a conversation about her record, right? And we can agree or disagree. But if you push most people to say, well, what do you mean that she's a top cop? She put people in jail, right? People couldn't get past that soundbite. Um, they couldn't say, well, it was this case or the way this policy program that she put into place. Um, and I would I always, I, I mean, as you know, we rock with her, you know, <laughs> early you know, we wanted to dream the possibilities that this country was ready for a woman and a black woman. But, you know, as I continue to grapple with that, because I don't want to be the petty, like, you know, a cartoon character where you're like, I'm your petty friend, petty patty. Um, I have my petty patty moments because I get go like, look at that, she could be president. Um, is that the world is different than when we were in the Democratic primary. The pandemic changed the thoughts for, I think, Americans about what they wanted leadership to look like. George Floyd's killing, Ahmaud Aubrey, Breonna Taylor, the uprisings this summer, the intergenerational and multiracial uprising in this um, this summer led to this moment. Um, and I think one, we as Americans had to be along this journey for Kamala Harris to be the vice president. I believe Kamala will say that she needed to have also been on the journey. And I think her lens around what needs to happen as a leader has been shaped by this journey. And then finally, if we didn't have this pathway, we wouldn't be able to talk about how wide and deep 
the bench of black women leaders that are ready to, to lead at the highest level. So during the vetting process, I mean, six women were speculated to be on that list. And Joe Biden at the end of the day said there were four black women on his final list. If we didn't go through all of this journey, you wouldn't have an American electorate to know about that a Susan Rice could have been a vice president, that, that Congresswoman Val Deming, Karen Bass, that former gubernatorial candidate and uh, voting rights advocate Stacey Abrams, and that we had a mayor on that list. So I do believe, as much as I still have my petty patty days, this had to happen to orchestrate the ability to talk about beyond 2020, the possibilities of black men's leadership. So we at Higher Heights have always demanded more that, that we need to see black women at all levels of office. We are now talking about probably accelerating that work coming out of 2020 because of the blueprint that has been laid out. That is not just a go, you know, like we're not just continuing to say, yes, we need to have more black women at local levels, but we've now like, if there's a, if, if the bench was six deep for vice president, then we certainly can now, you know, we have a major gap. There's no, there's not gonna be a black woman in the US Senate. So it's about how do we have multiple seats at the, in the US Senate and to completely break through the fact that we've never had a black woman governor. So we can go from zero black woman to governor to like within the next four years, like, oh, do we have five? I mean, just the possibilities have blown up beyond 2020. You know, unless we replace Kamala Harris seat with another black woman, which I think is, you know, people are talking about that and hopefully we do, right? Yeah. Um, but you mentioned a couple of other women who are in leadership. So it's not just about, you know, elected positions, but Stacey Abrams is obviously doing some really important work to moving us forward in 2020, right? Her work in Georgia is being highlighted because of of, you know, our turning Georgia blue. Then you have, you know, Tasha Brown of Black Voters Matter, you know, but one of the other trends that, I, that I've noticed, you know, with Black women in leadership positions is, you know, after Georgia turned blue, you know, after we had this week where everybody was kind of on pins and needles, they're like, what's going to happen with Georgia? All the praise came in for Stacey Abrams and for Latasha Brown and all the women who were on the ground leading, right? But, you know, often what I find is, is that, le that leadership, that praise rather, it's, it's kind of slow, right? It's kind of late, right? You know, we don't necessarily get the support when we're seeking power. And that's something that I'm hoping to change in, you know, conversations like we're having now. Like when Black women are seeking leadership positions like Kamala Harris was doing, you know, during the primary and like Stacey Abrams was doing, you know, during her race for, for governor, you know, that's when they need your support, not when they've saved everybody, right? <laughs> Absolutely. Um, I'm in the process of writing something about that as well. Like, again, the political possibilities that exist. Um, Stacey Abrams, and, and I call it the revisionist history. So Stacey Abrams literally has been, and this has not been overnight, this moment was orchestrated by Black women in a century in a making. And it goes back to the Black suffragists that sat at that table and helped to develop the 19th Amendment in the suffrage movement, knowing they weren't going to reap back what um, what they put back into that moment. It is the Black women who were the quiet architects and the front leaders for the civil rights movement. It's the complexity of Black women and the feminist movement and the women's movement. Um, and at the end of the day, the, you know, Stacey Abrams, when, you know, we higher high stood with her day one when she announced her gubernatorial campaign and it took a minute for her to build that big coalition right mm -hmm. um similar to again it took like kamala harris last year this you know she announced in um january 
2019. Um, you know, the coalition that she started with on her journey, it looks different than what it is now. And so um, we need to invest in Black women's leadership. We've actually proven both as voters, as advocates, and as elected leaders that we're your best return on investment. And so you're certainly right. I don't, you know, after the election where we're trying to figure out, we did our part. Like when I was doing press um, after um, election day, everyone's like, so what do you think? I was like, listen, Black women did exactly what we did exactly what we were saying we were going to do. We were we voted early, and we organized our 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 folk to the poll. We now need to have conversations with other folk about um, and how how you build a, build a more um, diverse coalition that isn't waiting for Black women to save the world. At the end of the day, we don't actually vote to save democracy. We are issue voters and we're value voters. Um, and, and we're certainly, you know, voting because we are centering the fact that um, we're at the bottom of every economic, health, and social indicator in this country. And so, our vote this year was a clear call to action to our elected leaders. Right? We are demanding our return on our voting investment, and that's in, in the forms of policies that directly impact Black women, our families, and our communities. And clearly, we're claiming seats at decision-making tables. So, if you're going to invest, because we've proven that that Americans, all Americans, a diverse group of American voters will vote for black women, then, you know, our party infrastructures, both Republicans and Democrats, because we actually had a record number of black women, Republicans and Democrats on um, the general ballot for the House of Representatives, invest in our leadership, actually recruit us. Oftentimes we will run against what the party infrastructure would like to see. So invest in black women's leadership, um, support, you know, for those who are listening, it's not about, you know, I know our candidates appreciate money, but, you know, as Emily says, early money rises like yeast. Invest in Black women's leadership from the beginning, not when she's won the primary or it's she's now the cultural phenomenon for, for, for the cycle. Invest in that leadership. Um, and, you know, I use an example. I It wasn't my parents said I was not named after Glenda the Good Witch, but I embody her um, with every little thing. She told Dorothy, right? So it's also talking about the possibilities that Black women see in themselves, that we've always had the power there. You just needed to know yourself, right? And so certainly over the last, you know, 10 years, Black women have continued to lean into our political power and influence. But this cycle, you can't tell Black women anything. Um, and it's not just about the the um, organizers like um, in Satan Fruit from the um, New Georgia Project, um, all the organizers that have not been named, <laughs> and, all, and, and literally all of the everyday Black women like my my mother, who or, who didn't know she was a micro organizer, that she organized her little voting block of our family, that all of these women unnamed to the, the those who've been named um, literally have built this moment. You know, one of the things I wanted to talk about, you know, we're talking about all these women who've, you know, had these successes. I mean, you could argue, I mean, of course you could argue that Georgia was a success and Kamala Harris, you know, obviously is, is a success. One of the things that there's a historic precedence for is when black people move a few steps forward, you know, um, there's always this backlash, right? There have been books written about this. You can see it during the civil white rights movement. There's a white backlash, you know, after that, as we got, got closer to the Civil Rights Act being passed, you know, there was a backlash against that, right? And, you know, and you can argue that we're living that right now after Obama's presidency. So, you know, I wonder what things are going to look like. And we can't necessarily worry about this, but at least we can prepare. You know, after, you know, Kamala Harris, because I 
believes she's probably going to run for president in the next, you know, four years or eight years, you know, how do we prepare for the possibility of a backlash for her and you know, all of these women who've had success? Yeah, I, mean, I think just as we are starting to have this modern day racial awakening and reckoning, um, this country needs to have a, a honest conversation and dialogue about race and gender. And, and particularly the intersection of race and gender. Um, and until we actually start having those conversations as organizations, um, as neighbors, we're still gonna grapple with this. I mean, at the end of the day, this was, you know, we've been living in some of the most politically toxic and racially divisive times in this generation. Um, and this election actually even, you know, revealed the toxicity of the moment. Um, and, and, and very overtly on how some neighbors feel about race and ethnicity. Um, and so if we don't grab, like actually have this conversation, we're gonna continue to see backlashes. Um, for me, you know, I voted um, in my um, home community where I'm originally from. And it's, you know, it's a, um, you know, I live, lived in Brooklyn for 20 years. I've been back in my, a very small town um, for the last you know, like year and a half, two years. And so my neighbors definitely all were voting you could tell that we were, we were voting differently because I know the law, like you saw the lawn, you saw the lawn sign battle. Um, and, you know, I'm the girl who's lived in Brooklyn for 20 something years back in a little small town in Connecticut. And I wanted to start chanting like, this is what democracy looks like. Because I knew my neighbors, we were, the people, it was different. I actually didn't know there was that many people of color in town. We were like, hey, how you doing, right? <laughs> and. And I knew that although we were quietly online talking about the line, how long the line was, what coffee we were drinking, that we were being neighborly, that we were voting differently. Um, and for me, that's democracy and I'm okay with it. What I'm not okay with is that it is tied to this undercurrent around, if I have, you can't have. That is the tension, right? Is that we all can't, that, that pie isn't big enough for us to divvy up. Um, and, and, and that then reared the very concerned parts of, well, it has to be dealing with race, like this race gender um, tug of war that we're having that as until all Americans know that we can actually build policies that rises everybody, um, we're gonna continue to see, see this back and forth. And that's not a stable democracy. And even during a global pandemic, knowing that our neighbors were actually voting against their own self-interest is concerning for me, but you do have a, you know, this is your right um, in democracy, and that's the work of Higher Heights is to ensure that your vote counts. Um, but we have to have to have uncomfortable conversations, and America has never been comfortable in having these types of conversations. But a pandemic is a little bit different in that <laughs> your actions and what you vote against could literally mean life or death for your neighbor. Right. Like if you're voting against, you know, someone who's going to put in a mask mandate or who's going to have a response, like any response to the pandemic, you're actually making a decision that could affect my life. Right. I mean, that's that's the, the bottom line. I don't know yeah. if I have more to say about that, but <laughs> no, I'm just like, I don't the mask is the mask debate is a perfect example. Right. Which is the mask you me wearing my mask actually doesn't protect me. I'm protecting you. And you can't reciprocate the whole notion that why don't you protect me? Um, is the paradigm like is is to me such a visual a visual understanding about self being selfish? I get mad when I'm at a, like out at a store, particularly when people wear their mask like under their like so their nose is exposed. I'm like, why wear the mask? 
Um, and it's just, I want, you know, I find myself telling them, like, I, why am I caring? Like, I care about you as a neighbor. I just need, I need people to care about me. But one of the things about uncomfortable conversations I've been thinking about a lot since, you know, all of the spotlight has gone towards those Black women who led, you know, in the South particularly, but just generally, who brought us to this moment is, you know, how do we build a multiracial coalition of women, women of color, right? Because there's some tension there. I mean, I, I, I don't know how detailed I want to go, but you know what I mean? Like, you know, oftentimes we live in a culture where they pit women against one another, right? And there's room for everyone on that stage, right? You know, just because Black women have the spotlight in this particular in this particular conversation about, you know, what's happening with this election, especially in the South, that doesn't mean that no one else has done the work, right? And if we, uh, you know, there's room for everyone on this stage. We don't need to malign another group. And it's just, I think that's going to be a struggle that we have to deal with coming forward. And there's going to be some, some really uncomfortable conversations about how we as women of color treat one another. Absolutely. Um, like you said, uh, there is a literally uh, ample seats at the table. Um, and I shouldn't say ample seat, ample space, because I always, Shirley Chisholm has a quote that says, if there's not a uh, seat at the table, bring your folding chair. And I think that is a, you know, a great illustration that it wasn't that I need to bump you out of a chair, right? That, you know, I'm bringing a chair because we can actually, we define how big, we can define how big the table is if we dream the possibilities that exist for women. Um, but it is oftentimes this, um, you know, we had, it's either or versus the expansion thereof. Um, and so there, there's another comfortable, uncomfortable conversation to have. Uh, and it is very clear that just because I am identifying and I am excited about uh, the, this moment for Black women, doesn't mean I'm not excited about the collective, right? The women of color collective, um, that, that we can still wrap our own individual identities and still be part of the broader collective. Um, and then also understanding the complexity of the women's space and, and being able to have, as you know, very frank conversation with our allied women um, around, you know, you know, it's isn't investing in black women at the same time that our white counterparts ought to be investing in having hard conversations with their with with with, with white women. So there's post election. There's a lot of conversations that need to happen, right, uh, among constituencies, and then we need to convene the coalition because at the end of the day, women did not win at the numbers that we thought they were going to win down ballot, right? And so we celebrate the top of the ticket at the unfortunate you know, expense of down ballot races. Now we celebrate the, 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 the journey because many of the black women that we were supporting or the, uh, the black women that were running for Congress, they were running in districts that are, would be expansion districts. They were running in rural areas across the country like a Pat Timmons Goodson in, in North Carolina. They were running in districts that as Democrats, as, um, as Democrats uh, uh, in Republican districts. And frankly, the Republican black women that were running were running in districts that have been historically Democratic strongholds. And so that's incremental gains uh, as it relates to where we can, what, what, where we can run for office. Um, and so I look forward to the conversations um, that are going to be uncomfortable, um, but that need to be had. I want to talk about some of the races that were, that stood out to me. And then you can mention some that stood out to you, but you know, there was Nakima Williams and I think she ran for John Lewis's seat, right? Mm -hmm. And that was one and she won her race and Lauren Underwood, who is ahead in her, in her race. Um, and then uh, obviously there's Cori Bush, Cori Bush, you know, made history. She's the first black woman, the first nurse, you know, to represent um, um, Missouri. So mm -hmm. what are some of the races that stood out to you that you're, that, you know, you're really excited about? 
Yeah. For the general ballot, there were 61 black women on the general ballot. So that included the, the 25, um, well, 20, 24 black women uh, in the House of Representatives, they were up for re-election and, and then the expansion. So 48 Democrats were on the general election ballot and 13 Republicans. Um, and so that was actually an increase from the record number of 18. So in addition to Nakima Williams, um, which we are excited about, um, not only she's a friend, she's a member of my sorority, she also is an example of like an advocate running for office. So here's a woman that started her career as an act activist, organizer, advocate, um, who ran for state legislature and is now, you know, about to become, um, step into some major shoes. Cause it's not like, oh, it's just a district. It's John Lewis's district. Right, right. Um, and, but I think she, you know, her career it, like suits that she's going to step into that role. Um, and if you don't know Nakima Williams, you certainly will. Uh, Corey Bush, as you said, once again, starts another conversation around black women running against income incumbents and, and winning. Um, in the tradition of Ayanna Presley, who did that in 2018. Um, Marilyn Strickland in Washington. So excited about that because we are expanding the number of states where Black women will um, be represented. Um, and we're talking about the West, <laughs> the North, the Northwest. I'm so excited about uh, her leadership. Here's a woman that was a local executive, um, the mayor of Tacoma. And so that experience sitting at a decision-making table in Washington during the global pandemic, like the next conversation that Congress will be having is how do we actually support our local and state governments who have major gaping budget gaps because of COVID-19. And so having a former executive of a, you know, a, one of the major cities in, in Washington being able to talk about, well, what can the federal government do to help support these cities, I think is an important role. Um, and we are sending back you know, it is confirmed we're sending four of the five freshmen uh, women back. Ayanna Presley, Lucy McBath, Johanna Hayes, and Ilhan Omar. And I am certain, you know, that Lauren Underwood will be right there with them. Um, and, you know, there's a couple other races that haven't been called. But, you know, at the end of the day, as it stands, we have sent a record number of Black women to Congress. I'm curious as to what I can do as a constituent, you know, what we can all do in the meanwhile to set them up with a really nice platform so that, that you know, not a platform as far as like a policy platform, but a good base to run in of support so that, that so that they make it. How can I help them succeed? Um, and so there's a couple of things. Um, if you see a, a Black woman in your network who is already elected but should be running for higher office, or if you see someone that, you know, like my funny, my, I never saw my best friend as the person that should run for office and she was doing an event for Higher Heights. Um, she's a stay-at-home mom who is like uber engaged in the local PTA, um, has, you know, you know, testified as a parent and a PTA representative at like the local school board. And we're at this brunch and like the whole brunch table was like, you should run for city, for, I mean, for school board, like you're the perfect school board member. I am certain that when you're virtually Zooming, talking to your friends, there's someone in your network that should be running for office and we should be encouraging them. Or you should be looking in the mirror at yourself. Um, and so I, I certainly think there's not going to be, um, um, you know, uh, uh, we're not going to see a lack of Black women raising their hands or stepping off the sidelines to run for office beyond 2020 um, because it's the role modeling effect. So Stacey Abrams' historic run create, you know, was part of the creation of this record number of Black women running this cycle. And Kamala Harris will certainly um, see a direct impact in the number of Black women running beyond uh, 2020. 
what we need to then do is to support them. And that is volunteering for them, um, you know, financially supporting them. That is the work of ensuring that we are supporting black women's political leadership in a way that prepares them um, to, to run for office. Well, Glenn Descartes, thank you so much for joining me today. I really enjoyed talking to you. Thank you so much for taking the time and thank you for all of the work that you've done on behalf of black women, of women of color, and all of the good work that Higher Heights has done. Thank you so much. Well, I enjoyed spending time with you and we look forward to continuing to build the democracy we can all believe in. Um, there's a, um, a quote from Shirley Chisholm I'll leave y'all with. Um, I'm getting ready to post it, which is, I, I did a Shirley Chisholm post every day since the election. This one though was, in America, I can, that I have faith in. And I certainly believe that, you know, we are working towards that. 